Hi, this is Chris Murphy, Managing Editor of the Cap Times here in Madison, Wisconsin, and welcome to the first episode of Cap Times Talks, a podcast bringing you smart conversations about big topics in our city. Today, we have a talk from earlier this November, hosted by the High Noon Saloon on Madison's east side. The topic at hand was, how can Madison build more great neighborhoods? We had five people join us for the talk. Michael Ford, an instructor at Madison College who has a national profile working at the intersection of hip-hop and architecture. What makes this a great place to live, yet one of the worst places for African Americans? Dave Mollenhoff, a local historian who helped lead a charge to revitalize the city's Marquette neighborhood in the 1960s. Neighborhood people can have power and can do wonderful things, but you have to have a little chutzpah. Tarek Sakoff, the city's neighborhood resource coordinator. There are a number of us at the city that are really trying to shift the way that that whole formula works, you know, in terms of public participation. Heather Stouter, the city's planning division director. Change is happening, and I think as a city we need to acknowledge that um, at the neighborhood level. And Sheree Wallace, a community activist in the Meadowood neighborhood. If you really want to stay in tune with what's going on in your community and who lives in the community, knocking on doors make a difference. The talk was moderated by Cap Time City Government reporter Abigail Becker. I'll let her take things from here. Thanks so much for being here. And um, kind of the question, what we're talking about right now is um, throughout your experiences, um, what are some lessons you've learned about building strong and vibrant neighborhoods um, in the city? So, uh, Okay, so uh, as um, the moderator just told you, uh, I was involved, uh, my goodness, this is a very long time ago, friends, in the 1960s. Do you remember that? <laughs> in the Market Neighborhood Association. And what I want to share with you tonight are 10 recommendations that uh, I learned and a lot of us others learned in revitalizing the market neighborhood. So I'll be very quick and uh, I'll share them with you. Uh, The first recommendation is to be willing to take responsibility for your neighborhood. The motto of our neighborhood association way back in the 1960s and 70s was very simple. Better neighborhoods will be created when neighbors care enough. It's hard to overemphasize that fact. Second, be rigorous in identifying problems and opportunities. Boy, did we have a lot of problems in the 60s and 70s. And as citizens, we took responsibility for that. We changed the zoning uh, code. We actually invented a new category. We developed a traffic uh, bypass for the neighborhood, and we saved our school. We also took advantage of some opportunities. For example, why is Central Park here? Well, it's here because uh, a bunch of us citizens got together and created a comprehensive plan. And we saw that old area where 25 railroad tracks were rusting, and many of them had been replaced at that point. And we said, what a great park that will be. So that's how that started. So think about problems and opportunities. Third. Be very clear about where you want to go. Think through the destination that you want. We had a lot of problems in our neighborhood, and the thing that challenged us mightily at the beginning was, where do we want to go? What is our destination? And we decided that the overall goal that would do the most to revitalize our neighborhood would be to find families who would buy and fix up and live in our these old homes and send their kids to our schools. At this point, the university was expanding very rapidly. Speculators were coming in, buying up the houses, fixing them up, uh, fixing or filling them up, I should say, with students and the like. The fourth recommendation is to focus on plans, programs, and policies that will most effectively accomplish your goal. I can rephrase that by saying avoid the activity trap. It is so easy for neighborhood associations to do things that cause the wheels to go around but really don't achieve the goals that you need. So that would be the fourth thing. The fifth is to build your constituency. We did it with a very interesting technique, which I'll explain to you very quickly. We went door to door, and we asked people three questions. The first was, what do you like about our neighborhood? 
The second was, what do you dislike about the neighborhood? And finally, what do you think we should do about these problems and opportunities? Immediately, we're talking to people to get them involved. And it's amazing the answers we got. From that, we put together a composite portrait that was the gyroscope and the plan for our neighborhood for, for many years. We also put together some special events that we felt were needed. And sometimes this is a good idea, too. For example, realtors were steering people away from our neighborhood. They were basically saying, you don't want to live there. It's a bad place. And we said, well, steering is not legal if you're a realtor. And so we went to the Stark company, and we said, well, you pay for a brochure to cause your realtors and all the others to recommend people buying homes in our neighborhood. So that was something that we did that might be of use to you. Here's the sixth recommendation. Fine-tune your neighborhood association for effectiveness. Problems change. Times change. When a small group of us uh, got active in the Market Neighborhood Association, our association was basically doing one band concert a year in Orton Park. But we realized that what we needed was a problem-solving machine. And so we had to reinvent the Neighborhood Association with new programs, new committees, and things of that sort. The seventh may be a little obvious, but I think it's worth mentioning. Make sure that you elect alders that support your neighborhood goals. I don't think we've had an alder in the 6th district since the 1960s that has not been a member of the Neighborhood Association. And if you want to get something done, this is absolutely essential. Eight, the eighth recommendation. Seek help wherever you can find it. You know, uh, sometimes there's a poverty of our imaginations, but if you're a neighborhood association, there's wonderful help available from the city. There is wonderful help available from philanthropists and from foundations. There's wonderful help available from nonprofits. Be creative. Figure out what it is you need, what resources you need, and then go out and get them. Number nine, do not be discouraged if you end up with a small group of neighborhood leaders. I will always remember what Margaret Mead recommended. She was a world-famous anthropologist that studied how human beings got things done. And her recommendations should be remembered by all of us who are interested in neighborhood association. She said, never doubt the power of a small group of thoughtful and committed citizens. It's the only way the world has ever changed. The same is true for neighborhood associations. Be not discouraged by the fact that a small number of people are active. And finally, this will be a little discouraging, I suspect, but it's realistic. Be willing to work for years. We Americans are a very impatient people, aren't we? We will like progress tomorrow. But that's not the way that neighborhoods work. It's not the way that cities are. It takes decades. For example, to build our Atwood Avenue bypass, <clears throat> it took seven years from the time we had the idea in our head until traffic could roll down the street. It took four years to reinvent a zoning category and get it in the books. You get the idea. Anyway, those are 10 recommendations that we learned when we were revitalizing the Marquette neighborhood in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I hope you find them helpful. Thank you. So again, my name is Tarek Sakhoff. I work uh, for the city coordinating neighborhood resource teams, which essentially are teams of um, staff, so a lot of different disciplines that come together uh, to work with residents and uh, staff from other community-based organizations to basically do whatever it is that we're supposed to be doing better and more in tune with the fundamental needs, issues, and priorities of folks in neighborhoods. And so really, it's a, it's a place-based racial equity strategy. I'm a lifelong Madisonian. I've kind of wandered through a lot, of, a lot of different worlds and done a few different things. And I guess that is what really informs my answer to that first question. I mean, there's a question about, like, well, what does neighborhood mean to anybody? And that means different things to different folks. 
But at the end of the day, everything I've ever been involved in, whether it was working with young people, whether it was community organizing, whether it's running programs, manager, supervisor, whatever it is, uh, relationships have fundamentally been the thing that drives everything. And so that's what I think of when I think of um, what creates great neighborhoods, strong and vibrant neighborhoods. I think about Mr. Rogers' neighborhood a lot in my job. I think about Sesame Street a lot in my job. And what those places felt like, or at least what I thought they felt like when I was five and six years old and watching them, it was about how people interacted with each other. There were these fundamental needs that were met, but ultimately it was the fabric of the society, this culture where people were talking to each other, where people had respect for each other, where people cared about each other, and no one assumed that people didn't care. And that's one of the big, big, big fears and concerns I have about the way I think Madison plays out sometimes. There's a narrative that starts to emerge that people don't care if they're not involved, or at least if they're not involved in the way that you think that they should be involved. Ultimately, people care. They care about where they live, they care about their families, and they care about the people that are close to them. And that, I think, the more and more we're able to support folks living in the places and where they live, I think that's how we get neighborhoods to really to come alive. Because it's ultimately, neighborhoods are about the people. It's not the place. I mean, the buildings, the streets, all of those things are just the canvas, but the people are the paint. So. That's my view. My name is Sheree Wallace, and I live in a Meadowood uh, neighborhood. And I've been there for about 15, 16 years. And I love that neighborhood. I love the Neighborhood Association. Uh, Aldermen is a part of the process and teaches us the process. But what really makes our neighborhood unique is that we traditionally, we care about each other. And when you have a neighborhood and you offer resources to the residents that live in your community, and when you build relationships in the community among the people that live there, and when you promote health and wellness, like I have a community health office in the library, and when you have a, a library that supports the need of the community and a community uh, center that have the things that is needed that the kids can excel and learn and grow, and um, that makes a difference in a community. And having a strong, active neighborhood association means a lot. Not pushing their agenda, pushing the agenda of the residents that stay there. And that is the unique thing about Meadowood Association. It's not about what the little white people are thinking. They are homeowners. They are reaching out to the tenants, the renters, and that makes a difference. We build up our relationship through community suppers different events. We have two active churches in our community that care about the people and how people engage, how they live, Orchard Ridge, Good Shepherd Church. The people in Meadowood community have a lot of things and resources, and that's what make us strong, make us feel like we are empowered, and that what is really, really make up a community. Yes, we have some issues and that, but we face those issues. We deal with those challenges. We bring that to the forefront. So whenever you hear negative things, know that as residents, as association members, the aldermen, we all come to the table at the church and we talk about it. So that will that builds up a good community. I won't be able to follow that up with something that's good, but I think um, some of the things that I've learned about creating successful communities. Uh, I'll share a couple. Uh, one thing that's important um, to me is to hear some of the stories and, and perspectives from a variety of people, because usually the, the professionals that are planning 
communities, um, oftentimes um, we're working in communities where uh, the people sitting at the table are not uh, reflective of that community that we're planning in, and historically um, that has never ended well. Uh, I look at it from a totally different perspective. Um, I tell the story of, um, I guess I'll ask the question first. How many people in here are hip-hop fans? All right, so about 47.5%. But for the other 52.5, yeah. So the other 52.5% that didn't raise their hand, um, I'm more interested in talking to you. Um, And what I do is tell the story of how uh, hip-hop was birthed and tie it to some of the failures of urban planners um, architects, designers, etc., who um, had a do-good attitude, um, but ultimately um, not communicating with the residents, but also planning for, as opposed to planning with, ultimately created the environments which birthed hip-hop culture. Um, and it's not just the physical spaces that we plan, but also the policies that are housed um, by those structures. So I believe you know, having a discussion um, with those residents to understand the impacts of the architecture or planning, that, uh, the impacts that it have on their lives, but also uh, the next thing I think that, that we must do to have communication for understanding what a successful community is, is having a, a very cross-disciplinary conversation. It's not bringing all architects and planners to the table, but looking at health professionals, because um, I believe that the physical environment um, has a, a great impact on the people who inhabit the spaces, and we need to bring as many uh, professionals in to talk about that, and yeah, I'll, I'll end it right there. All right, thank you. A uh, lot to lot to take in here and, and try to, to follow up on. Um, first of all, I, I just want to acknowledge that I think you know the aspects of strong, vibrant neighborhoods are really different um, based on based on your perspective. You know what I see as as key ingredients in a strong neighborhood may be completely different than um, than others on the panel and and in the audience as well. Um, I think as as planners, it's important for us to acknowledge that and ensure that we're trying to set a foundation where people can make choices, where people have opportunities to make choices about where to live, what type of housing to live in, how to get around on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, that, that's probably one of the, the key things uh, to me as a professional planner that we strive for is, is trying our best with the limited power that we, that we have as, as planners to create spaces for, for choice. Um, I want to mention uh, just a couple, uh, actually three ways that I think the city of Madison is working to do that, and and you know our profession has a very rough history. I think Michael alluded to that. Um, when you look back on planning, we've we've made a lot of significant mistakes over the decades, and I think it's important for us to always be thinking about um, the the systems that we're working in within uh, today, and and whether you know maybe we we are making some of those mistakes too. So always to be critical of of our profession is really important. But I think here in Madison, if if you think of the city as three concentric rings, uh, the sort of the center city isthmus and environs, um, the area right outside that, and the periphery um, where we're still continuing to grow as a city. I, I just want to talk very briefly about those three different areas of the city. I think um, you know in the in the central core. Um, we're seeing a lot of redevelopment interest. Obviously, you know, uh, taller buildings were really growing up, um, a lot, lot more uh, density happening right in the, the center. And I think it's critical for us to realize that we need to welcome the many people that want to live in the center, you know, the center city, well-connected by transit to other areas, et cetera. And we need to really do all we can to ensure inclusive growth so that a lot of people can make that choice to live in the, in the center city if they'd like to, all the while trying to balance the, the high quality of life for people who have lived there for, for years or, or decades already. I think that's a key challenge uh, within, our, within our city. Um, when you think about the, the periphery, so that the, the very outskirts of the city, we're, we're still growing. I think um, this is our opportunity to try to get things right. 
um, when, we, when we see new subdivisions proposed, it's absolutely critical that we get those streets laid out correctly and that there's a mix of housing types, mix of land uses, because really those spaces are going to be the neighborhoods um, on the periphery in 20, 30, 50, 70 years from now. Um, they will be you know, facing some of the same changes and evolutions that we're seeing elsewhere in the city today. So trying to really get those things right up front is, is absolutely critical. And then in the area in the middle, you know, as of late, we haven't seen too much investment in that sort of the, the middle area that developed largely between the 50s and the, the 80s or 90s. Um, and I think as, as planners, we're really looking hard at trying to find those opportunity sites that can make really significant differences in a neighborhood that can really create spaces for people to gather, um, create new, um, new housing development, redevelopment sites that can, can really catalyze positive change in neighborhoods and, and make more efficient use of, of those lands. And so a lot of what I just said is, is pretty boring because it's not about the people, which I absolutely agree are the critical ingredient of, of strong and vibrant neighborhoods, but just wanted to mention some of the, the things about that, that canvas and what we as planners um, look toward as sort of creating that physical foundation for, for great places to live. I wanted to follow up um, with you on some of your comments and, you know, um, something that we've talked about before. Um, Dave brought this up, this is aspect of patience and that, um, you know, people in the city, we should uh, be patient because projects can take a long time. And um, we talked about how um, Union Corners, you know, just a little bit down the way on East Wash, how that was a project, you know, years in the making and it required a lot of patience. Um, and so I was just kind of wondering if you could sort of explain a little bit about that project. And, um, you know, there were even some proposals the city, you know, said no to because um, it felt, you know, very strongly about what um, kind of development uh, should be going there? Sure, absolutely. Um, so Union Corners is is a unique site in that the city actually owned it at one point. So we had a great amount of control as far as what happened at, at Union Corners because we could decide whether or not and who to sell it to and, and when. And so that doesn't usually happen. It's, a, it's different than the norm. Um, most uh, developments are um, happening at the initiative of private landowners. But for this particular case, um, I think Union Corners, and this is right at East Washington and Milwaukee Street, um, had been a, a battery, uh, had been a, a battery factory, had been a, a site for a, a grocery store as well. Um, when those uses went away, it was a, a really amazing infill opportunity to see a lot of um, a lot of neighborhood serving uses a lot more housing we really thought that that um, that 12 I think it was nine to 12 acre site um, could really do a lot for for that broader area um, and Abby's right one of the one of the early proposals that did come in for that site was for a one-story convenience store on that prime corner of Milwaukee Street in East Washington and in some ways the city, um, it was to our interest to get that sold um, and, and you know, get it back on the tax rolls again. But I think the city did the right thing in, in waiting for, for something grander. Um, you know, as many of you probably know, now there's a, a UW clinic, um, not on the corner site, but a, a little, little off that main corner. There's 90 new housing units that have gone up, um, most of which are, are affordable. Uh, housing units, and then still the the corner property is available for what we believe will probably be a, a three to five story mixed use building in the future. So that that was a site where I, I think we we made the right decision to wait, uh, wait out the market, and and ensure that it was a really more efficient use of land and could could accommodate many more people, households, and amenities in the long run. That's one of the things that we run up against the the most is just kind of the mismatch between expectations and then the way things are actually going to play. And I think more and more, the, the one of the things I think that we try to do um, with the neighborhood resource teams is just ground folks in a little bit of like, this is the way the game ultimately works. This is the way the process works. This is the time horizon. Just trying to allow some of that anxiety to kind of fall away so people are at least aware of like, this is how long it's going to take and trying to get past that that feeling of like but it's got to happen now and i think once we're able to do that and address some of those concerns there's been um things tend to work a little bit more smoothly but that's just i think just reinforcing that that patience is is really critical you got to know what game you're in if you're looking for something to get done one like next year it might not happen the horizon is really five years 
And you know what, Tar? I think uh, having a resource NRT out in the community is important because I've learned a lot sitting on the NRT and how you deal with our situations and our topics and walk us through the process. So that's an important piece that is needed in every community. And people need to get involved in um, associations, NRT, get to know your neighbor, uh, neighbor and alderman. I wanted to, uh, yeah, just back up a little bit when we were talking about, um, you know, what can we do to build strong and vibrant neighborhoods? Um, and as I think one of you guys mentioned, um, what a strong neighborhood looks like can differ from person to person. So I wanted to throw that question back at you all and ask, you know, what do you think are characteristics of a strong, vibrant neighborhood? It all depends on the dynamics of the community. Like Maple Bluff will be different than uh, Meadowood. And like I said, what makes a strong and vibrant neighborhood is the resources. It's having a family resource center, like today, not tomorrow. It's like having projects babies in the community. It's having a good active joining forces for families and, and churches that uh, get involved with um, what's going on in the community. It's like having a library where kid, kids feel safe. And in our community, kids feel safe, and they also get a meal at the Meadow Ridge Library. It's like having a good community center, you know, so that that makes a good neighborhood. I guess I add a couple a couple things. I think when I think about my own life, um, it it echoes my professional opinions about a lot of things. But you know, having having a young a young kiddo, um, one of the most critical things is variety. Um, I think you know, exposure to a wide variety of different people, um, different types of places, is just absolutely critical. As as we bring up uh, bring up young young kiddos today. Um, of course, you know, being able to walk to as many different amenities as possible. I, I love having access to a lot of great parks and, and opportunities for, for play. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the importance of other community gathering spaces is critical. And that can be anything from a community center, a library, something that's a public space to maybe a private business, a church, um, a barbershop. You know, that, that's one of the, the Probably one of the strongest community gathering spaces that I'm I'm hearing about these days is, is happening in a in a barber shop um, on the the far west, far southwest side of Madison. Um, so I think having having that community gathering space, regardless of what it is, is is absolutely critical. And then one last thing is just to to be able to have transit choices. I think to me um, that's important to be able to wake up and make a decision about how you're going to get around that day. And, and transit's a key ingredient to that. Again, I think so many of my comments are going to go back to the people. You know, I, uh, I actually am like one backyard away from Heather. And one of the, the highlights for me in my life is that same kiddo that she was mentioning. You know, like when I see him, that's a perk of my day. But, you know, a lot of my life in my neighborhood is touched by the people I encounter, the folks that I know, the folks that I see. And when I talk to people in neighborhoods that I'm working in, a lot of that um, comes up in the same way. It has to do with interactions with the different folks that, that cross their life. Now, I think once you back that up, though, when you talk about, like, the stress, like those basic needs and wants that we talk about so often, there are lots of neighborhoods um, which we might not even be able to call neighborhoods, really. I think in Madison, there are a lot of places that we're talking about neighborhoods, which might be more just a collection of streets or a couple blocks, which doesn't necessarily mean it's got that full base. But where folks are really struggling on the housing front, they're struggling in terms of just base jobs, they're struggling in terms of childcare and all these different pieces. And that level of stress starts to accumulate, and I think it really starts to get into the way of people being able to just enjoy the folks around them, those base relationships. So I think that's where, like in Sheree's comments, a lot of those resources that need to come in uh, are, are really critical. Um, and I think one of the, uh, Heather was talking about gathering spaces and, and Sheree community centers, but that community facility that provides some sort of anchor uh, 
is a really, really important and vital com component. And that can look like a lot of different things. I mean, right here, it might be the Willie Street Co-op that it acts as that third space, you know, where so many people are interacting with each other. Back in Meadowood, it's going to be the library and the uh, the neighborhood center. So that whatever that that place is can look like a lot of different things, but it has to exist to have that anchor um, from where com people can essentially kind of convene in different ways. I'll just mention another uh, point. Um, one of the things that uh, a vibrant neighborhood needs is that ability to believe you can do it. Uh, one of the things that um, confronted us in our neighborhood was the discovery that the school superintendent wanted to close our school. Well, you close a school, which is the center of a neighborhood in just about every case, and you remove the heart of the neighborhood. We didn't realize how much power we had when we asked the members of the school board to come out and sit in one of our living rooms and listen to our pitch. And to make a very long story short, we persuaded the school board members to reverse the opinion of the school superintendent. So I say this because neighborhood people can have power and can do wonderful things, but you have to have a little chutzpah. You have to realize you have to have faith. You have to believe that you can do it. That's really important. Um, I wanted to, to ask what you all think of um, about community engagement and, and how that can be fostered. Um, and, and that can look like many different things. And uh, kind of to piggyback on that, there was a question um, from an audience member about, um, about how do you foresee younger generations impacting the neighborhood? So, um, you know, if, in, in the answer to that question, if you could sort of address how you see younger generations, um, you know, getting involved and working with um, the community and in neighborhoods. I believe that uh, community engagement, uh, when it is consist consistent, it's effective. Uh, example, in Meadowood, we have community suppers. We build relationships. And I, and I organize these uh, community suppers, bringing a lot of different resources, the resources that the community uh, need, like we have health fairs. We have different little things. So um, the residents look forward to the next community supper, and they are updated on the things that's going on in the community. The alderman comes. He gives them city information. So um, engaging people in the community is important. And you don't do it by Facebook or computers. You go knock on doors. You see your neighbor. It's better when you knock on and you invite somebody personally. Come out to dinner. Come in. We're doing this. And now I have so many people saying, Sheree, when is the next community supper? When we're going to do this? So um, face... Um, the media, that's good, but if you really want to stay in tune with what's going on in your community and who lives in the community, it's like you said, knocking on doors make a difference. When it comes to how youth can help lead the development uh, of communities, um, something about kids that, that I admire and I try to draw out from them during uh, my engagement sessions is uh, kids have an imagination that uh, adults tend to lose because we've been hit by this thing called reality that might not really be reality but we, we call it reality so a kid can believe that they're talking to an imaginary friend and until you constantly tell them that there's no friend there eventually they'll stop did they see an imaginary friend we don't know they can believe that they're a bird. I don't know, we had a kid jumping around right here, but all of us are sitting down, we're having our drinks. So their imagination uh, is a lot more free than ours. And I believe that the imagination can be transferred into architecture and urban planning, uh, community development, uh, creative placemaking, um, because they can bring that imagination that's not tainted by uh, deadlines, it's not tainted by um, budgets, all right? That reality hasn't hit them. And I believe when we 
pair ourselves with youth, we can come up with some solutions to issues that, uh, solutions that we may not have thought of. Uh, I've discovered that as I've conducted camps for kids across the country about making their neighborhoods better and some of the ideas that they say are very simple and sometimes are not long-term, like a lot of our projects we work on, because a lot of the community, um, they need immediate interventions. It's not projects that can have two, three, or four-year progress that, that needs to happen in order for it to take place. I mean, they're facing immediate issues, like, am I going to eat tonight when I leave this meeting? Um, so us talking about a five-year plan is not helping me. It may be fine for you, but it's not helping me. Um, but I believe working with uh, the imagination of the youth, we could start to solve some of those issues creatively. Then the other thing um, about working with communities, um, not to pick on a crowd here, but to definitely pick on a crowd here. If you look around, like literally look around, how many people do you see that don't look like you? It's very few. I believe that we've done a great job and we constantly do a great job at always pulling the same audience to different events. Like our marketing works is stellar. Our academic system, all right, the curricula that we have set up across the country, it works. It's perfect. It always produces the same people. And I believe that if we want to have different people at the group, at the, at the table, um, we have to totally change the way that we do simple things, like invite people out to events like this. Uh, you have to do something totally different. You can say, hey, I posted it on Facebook. That's great. But you might have to literally talk to someone um, to get them to come out, like discover what are the different communication methods. Uh, but again, our system works. And if we keep going with the working system, we'll keep having meetings like this. Um, but I think to be effective, we have to totally step out of our comfort zones and bringing kids around takes us out of that, that comfort zone. You know, Michael's work has been so um, inspirational to our, our staff team in the Imagine Madison process. So seeing him work with, with youth in the hip-hop architecture camp has been amazing. I think when I think about our outreach efforts with youth, I think one of the most important things is to make sure that um, the youth that are engaging have, they can see themselves in Madison 20 years down the line. You know, they're really the ones that are going to inherit the places that are evolving today. And I think it's just absolutely critical that they see themselves as a, a key part of the community. Entrepreneurs, um, thought leaders, doers. And I, I just think that's really, really important for all of us to remember as we, as we engage with, with youth in any capacity. I guess the thing that I think about, whether it's um, young people or, or not as young people, you know, is, is really a sense of ownership. And so the more opportunities folks have to, to get involved and, and do things that touch their communities, and they're able to see the kind of traces um, of themselves on their communities, then it starts to become reinforcing. I mean, we've worked with uh, young people on developing some parks in different areas in the city. And seeing them out at those parks a year after the fact, after they've been in it, um, it's a pretty, it's a pretty great interaction, you know, where they're talking about like what that process was like and the pride that they felt in it. And it's certainly going to inform, I know their life going forward, the next opportunity there is, or them creating the opportunity to get involved. Um, so being able to see that when you do something, it matters and it, like translates into some tangible results is is one of the things I think we can really, really build on. Um, just allowing that ownership to develop and and be celebrated. So this was another question um, from the audience that I wanted to ask, and and that is when should the city inform and um, I guess gather feedback from neighbor neighbors on um, new projects. So. I don't know who the best person for that might be, but I guess, you know, um, how soon should a neighborhood association be involved in a neighborhood or in a development project? Um, how can they get involved? That sort of thing. I think Madison has a, a very strong culture, an extremely strong expectation of involvement by, by neighborhood groups early and often within uh development processes. So as the city evolves and changes, um, mostly with, with private developers um, building new buildings, um, I think that our, you know, our, our residents in Madison have 
quite a bit of opportunity to to be involved in, in that change. Um, I think tonight there are several neighborhood leaders here um, that I've seen in the audience that um, you know their perspective is probably um, way more on than mine is. But from from my perspective, I, I think we do have a, a really good culture of of resident involvement in in change in the city. Yeah, I, I agree with Heather. I think it's it's pretty good as it is right now. Um, one of the things, just going back to the earlier question about youth, this was a question we had about kids about gentrification and what's being built in their communities and pushing them out. I'll keep it short, but one of the most creative responses, I mean, this kid needed to be on Shark Tank or something, but um, he wanted to create an app where everybody in the community could go and review developments as happening in their community and you it would get a thumbs up or thumbs down or some number rating and these developers will have a rating from community members as opposed to um, the banks that fund them um, the banks would be forced to look at the people who inhabit the spaces that they build or live in their communities so you had this thing you'll walk by with your phone and you can hold it up to all the buildings and you'll see like thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up, thumbs down uh, as a new way to uh, engage people. Because one of the things that, you know, when you talk about having um, a school board come to your living room, that's great. And some of us know how to make that happen. But there are some residents who, like you were saying, they may not think that they can do it. But how can we democratize this idea of having your voice heard and um, social media and uh, technology is something that's in everybody's hands. So how can we make our processes for evaluating the success of projects or even bringing it to people's attention as early as possible? How can we do that with, with technology? And again, a kid had an amazing idea. So in the Meadowood neighborhood, when we were redesigning uh, a library and a community center, the residents of the community was on board at the beginning. We learned the process through um, the aldermen, the Meadowood Association, the executive and uh, the resource team. So we all learned the process, you know, residents like me that never ever been in in that kind of process of learning um, how to develop what you needed to do and was able to put out thoughts and they were able to draw. And in Meadowood, we are really involved in the things that is going on in our community. We have a connection, a strong connection, and a good leadership, a real strong, supportive uh, neighborhood association, Alderman County Executive, and, um, the, and coming out the mayor's office, the NRT. So we are involved in a lot of things that go on in our community. We know about things that's being developed or things that they want to put up in the community. So the question was how early should folks in neighborhood associations get involved? So this is where I, I guess I would shift away from that a little bit. Um, I really see neighborhood associations as one type of group that might come together connected to a neighborhood. And there might be a lot of other types that aren't um, operating as associations, but certainly are going to be made of people in the neighborhood. I think that, you know, early is the answer, but I'd, I'd, there are a number of us at the city, and I think just city in general, that are really trying to shift the way that that whole formula works, you know, in terms of public participation. I mean, it's great that we've got a really involved uh, group of residents across the board in, in Madison. Um, but that goes back a lot of times to and what Michael was saying, you know, you get the people who you get who have historically shown up. And I fundamentally think it's our responsibility. So talking for the city, if the county is doing a thing, it's the county's responsibility. If the school district is doing a thing, it's the school district's responsibility. But as a city, it's our responsibility to make sure that we are going out there and talking to folks 
whether they be on neighborhood associations, whether they're involved, they're involved in another group, or whether they're not involved in any group, but they're you know behind that door that we need to knock on and, and ask them what they think. But that's for us, I think, to increasingly get involved with folks that are living in Madison, living in these neighborhoods, to find out, again, what's really important, what's what are the issues, what are the needs, what are the priorities, and then act on that. And then I think the other piece is recognize that a lot of that's been done in different ways and by different folks. And so, you know, those three questions that David asked um, as he was going through his list of 10 in the beginning, they really matter. What do you like? What don't you like? What do you want to see different? Um, or how do you want to see things change? Those are important questions. And a lot of people are asking them. A lot of the same people. And that can get to be exhausting. And so I think we need to start paying attention to um, what, have, what do we already know? What have folks already told us? And like honoring that and working off of that or recognizing that we've got at least a few starting points. So early is the answer, but I think it's also imperative for the city or whatever group is doing, whatever project it might be, to start involving people early or start talking to people early. The better job you do really vetting your product, whatever it is with the people that are gonna be using it, the better it's gonna be for everybody, right? Another question, I know I think we're coming up on, on about our time, um, but one question, uh, this one is also from the audience, but um, it's about how do, um, you know, I guess how can we as a community um, develop and preserve neighborhood spirit or I guess the character of neighborhoods? Um, and a specific example that um, the question brought, that brought up was the area of South Park Street in South Madison. There's a lot of um, development going on um, in that area. And so I guess kind of thinking about um, new changes and new projects and developments, how do, um, how do those work with holding to, um, you know, I guess what really makes up um, kind of the character of a neighborhood? When talking about character and makeup of neighborhood and preserving characteristics, um, that's an interesting conversation for somebody like me who really looks at the, the history of neighborhoods and characteristics. I think first is determining if we want to keep it. Um, because, again, uh, talking about this profession and what perspective some of those communities and characteristics were developed from. It was a very non-inclusive process. You can imagine some of the things that get inserted uh, when you have a non-inclusive process, right? These are not vetted. Uh, people that could give uh, great opinion and feedback are not there at the table. So uh, I think it's important that we first evaluate if we want to and not bring all the people to the table who are in favor of keeping it the way that it is. One of the interesting conversations that happened recently at Madison College, we brought in a speaker, uh, his name is Brian Lee, uh, who's from New Orleans and has been instrumental in leading a charge to uh, remove Confederate monuments from uh, places across the country. And one of the discussions that came up was the name James Madison uh, throughout the city. So the high school and the students who wanted to remove the name. Um, so characteristics is an interesting conversation. Um, and sometimes I argue that it's not time to preserve and times to dismantle. And then sometimes there may be things in communities that we think have little to no worth um, but we may be surprised at um, what some of those residents might hold as important that uh, a lot of people may have overlooked. So I think just that conversation uh, should be had about what are characteristics, because again, uh, it more than likely wasn't from an inclusive place. We, as uh, in the planning division, we deal with this a lot, uh, particularly in that center area of the city where we are seeing a lot of redevelopment pressure, um, not just along South Park Street, but obviously East, East Washington and, and other areas as well. And I think it's that key question of balance. You know, we know that we need to accommodate a lot more households in these areas. They're, they're great neighborhoods. People want to live there. They need to be more and more inclusive over time. Um, we're trying uh, at at the city to incentivize uh, development of affordable housing in these areas because we see them as, as areas that are really well served by transit and other amenities and really need to have choices for a very wide variety of households. I think um, all of that needs to be balanced with we, we do want to see the quality of life enhanced for people that have lived there for a while, for people that are coming in that are new. And we really believe that that finding that balance is the important piece. You know, 
adding density can be done really well. And I think we're seeing areas of the city where that's, where that's really happening and, and change is happening. And I think as a city, we need to acknowledge that um, at the neighborhood level. But um, I do think there's a, there's a good balance where we can continue to make sure that we have a very strong quality of life in these, these core neighborhoods and at the same time welcome a very large amount of, of new residents who are excited to live here too. I just want to add one last thing because I know we're probably like done after this question. Speaking of characteristics, another thing that is important is thinking about the people. Um, and, you know, Madison or, or Wisconsin in, in general, you know, is seen as, you know, one of the, the best places to live constantly. You know, Madison is always seen as one of the best places to live in the country, but yet it's constantly raked as one of the worst places to live for African Americans. And, um, you know, are there characteristics to the way that we have developed communities that aid in that constantly being uh, true? Like, it's are there characteristics we can find that we can um, attribute to why that's a fact? Um, also, with um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Might be recorded. I don't want to say too much, but <laughs> we really need to look at the, the disparities that happen. Um, they don't just happen. Are there places and spaces that um, foster those types of develop, uh, reactions from the people to who inhabit those spaces? Are there spaces and places that protect people um, when they act out in ways that may not be favorable? Are there certain aspects to spaces that just evoke those types of actions? Um, and I think that's something else that we should consider as our population starts to shift. Um, you know, what makes this a great place to live, yet a worse, uh, one of the worst places for African Americans? You know what? I think the uh, like the building on Milwaukee, real nice design, real nice, beautiful, but it wouldn't be good for metalwood because we don't. When we design in those buildings and you stand for people that's living in uh, for affordable housing, so you stand families, right? So there's no park. Kids can't play. They're going to be hanging out in front of the building. And then they probably is going to be, um, as they grow up, get bigger and if you got five kids in a family and all five kids have one friend apiece, what do that look like? Okay. So I think that in certain neighborhoods, if you don't have that space where when you put an affordable housing up, the space like a park or a a backyard behind us affordable houses where kids can come out and be kids and play. You're just creating another situation down the line. Thank you all for those answers. Um, yeah, so we are about to, I guess, wrap up this conversation. Um, so thank you all so much um, for, for joining us this evening. Thanks for tuning in for this first episode of Cap Times Talks. We put together these talks about once a month. In the meanwhile, you can check out our other podcasts, including The Corner Table, The Cost of Opportunity, and another show brimming with great conversations just like this one called Live from Cap Times Idea Fest. Please subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you may find podcasts. I'm Chris Murphy, and thanks again for listening.